This episode is sponsored by our friends at Fujifilm North America. Their X-Series digital cameras and lenses may just give you that creative edge you're looking for in your portraits and events. You'll find everything from 40 megapixel image quality to 40 frames per second bursts, plus unique in-camera film simulation modes and effortless usability. Click the link in the episode description to find the full range. There has never been a better time to invest in your passion, so make sure to click the link. Hey there, it's Nikki Klosser, and I want to let you know about an awesome free giveaway for people on our email list. If you haven't already, click the link in our podcast description or go to theportraitsystem.com slash sign up to get on the list. If you sign up, you'll get a free posing 101 PDF to jumpstart things. It's an epic PDF, so you'll definitely want to get this. Also, just by being in our email community, you'll get deals, sales, and information about any of our upcoming events and activities. So head over to theportraitsystem.com slash sign up and sign up today. This is the Portrait System Podcast, a show that helps portrait photographers and people hoping to become one navigate the world of photography, business, money, and so much more. We totally keep it real. We share stories about the incredible ups and the very difficult downs when running a photography business. I'm your host, Nikki Klosser, and the point of this podcast is for you to learn actionable steps that you can take to grow your own business and also to feel inspired and empowered by the stories you hear. Hey everyone, today's episode is from the 12-week startup that is currently happening over at SueBriceEducation.com. Every Tuesday, I go live with a special guest and we record it for you as a bonus episode for you to listen to. If you want to be part of the question and answer live session that we do, head over to SueBriceEducation.com slash live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific time. You can join in on the support that we have going on over there to help photographers to take their business to the next level. Also, if you're not part of the 12-week startup yet and you want to access all of the weekly life-changing content that Sue has created for you, head over to SueBriceEducation.com and you can sign up there. Just a quick heads up that you'll be hearing me refer to images and that we're looking at images. So obviously you won't be able to see those photos. However, if you want to see all of the images that we refer to, make sure to log in to SueBriceEducation.com where you can watch the whole thing because we actually recorded this live and did it on video through Zoom with our guest speakers. If you're not a member of Subrice Education, head over to SueBriceEducation.com where you can sign up to become a member. Okay, let's get started. Hi, hi everyone. Welcome to week three. All right, so we are going to get started. This lesson this week is camera basics. And I know it's not the like most exciting week of the tech stuff and whatever, but it's a really, really, really important week because if you don't know how to use your camera, then technically it's it's hard to call yourself a professional. And we're not saying you have to be like, you know, ace everything, but to understand how to shoot in manual and just to understand what your camera does and the different functions is so, so, so important when it comes to being a professional photographer. So I actually have two experts today with me, Michelle Salentano, who is a Canon Explorer of Light, and also Paul Giroux, and he is a Sona Alpha photographer. So I am the first to admit that tech was never, never something that was very easy for, for me. It didn't come naturally to me. It's just something I've always had to work a little bit harder on than I feel like most people, or at least maybe a lot of people don't admit that they have to work as hard as I do, but I'm, I have no shame in admitting that this was not my superpower. But the thing is, is the more you practice and the more you just learn and really understand how the different parts go together and the di- how the different functions work, uh, it can just get so much easier as you learn and practice. So during the lessons this week, Sue covers you know so many things like ISO, f-stop, toggling and recomposing, mostly using natural light. There is some stuff in there with strobe light, studio light, that sort of thing. But everything that is in the videos is is very very basic. If you want to get even you know more into just everything that that your camera can do we also have on the website if you haven't seen it yet it's john gringo's class it's a master class about basically how to master your camera and it is free for members so like anyone who is an sbe member it used to not be used to not be free but what we did is we added it to the video library for you so if you want to get even just you know deeper and more into 
learning about your camera, make sure you head over to John Gringo's class after you watch Sue's basic classes. So if, you know, if you are someone who already feels like I know how to use my camera, like I've mastered it or whatever, there's uh, technology is always changing, changing. There's always more that you can learn from, you know, your camera and and things like you could practice double exposure or trying different video techniques or I mean there's just so much to learn. I feel like we're never done learning. So make sure if this is a week for you that you're like, "Eh, you know, I already kind of know it." Stretch yourself and see what else you can learn. Okay, so one thing I want to mention about John Gringo's class is so Sue is the all-time highest selling teacher instructor on Creative Live. So of all the instructors that have ever been there, Sue like skyrocketed past for how many courses she sold. John Gringo is number two. And he's kind of like that like underdog quiet storm that creeped in there because, you know, you wouldn't think like camera camera basics. It's just not that exciting. However, he has done something like 80 courses. He is like the go-to guy when you are trying to learn your camera. So I cannot recommend enough. Uh, I'm not sure how long we're going to have that course up there for free. So make sure you dive into it and watch it while you had the chance before it goes back into the Portrait Master store. Another thing before I bring on our amazing guests is I remember Sue saying something to me. Gosh, she said this to me years ago. She was like, you know, you're almost as good as me. You just, I'm, I'm, just a few steps ahead of you. Well, a lot of steps, really. But I, I remember when she said that, like, you and so many of the students on Sue Bryce Education, you think that I'm, like, you know, way up here and I'm, like, so much better, you know, technically or whatever. But really, I'm just a few steps ahead of the game. Like, it, you know, you can get there. You can catch up. She's like, I don't have any sort of, like, magic that you don't have. It's just a matter of practicing your your craft and mastering what you do. And I remembered, like, kind of laughing at that. Like, you're right. There's no, I'm, I'm, like, there's no way, you know. But in the end, as I see, as I grow as a photographer and as a business person, I'm like, I'm catching up. Obviously, Sue is still, you know, whatever. But there is the opportunity to continue to grow, to be the type of photographer that Sue is. I've heard people say that, but I'm not like Sue, so I can't sell. And that is not true. Not true whatsoever. You just have to keep pushing forward and practicing. So, okay. Before I introduce everyone, while I'm actually getting them um, prepped and ready tech-wise, I just want to know you know, from you guys, what is your biggest pain point around technology and just like camera tech and camera basics? What is it that that you struggle with? Like we hear people say sometimes that it just doesn't come easy to me. And that's okay. Like even Sue said, it doesn't didn't come easy for her either. And actually, Kate White was the most recent Portrait System podcast episode that I did. It just came out on Monday. And she said the same thing. She's like an incredibly successful fashion photographer. She does it out of her house. And she, like it, it was really intimidating for her to do the whole you know, learning of strobes and studio lights, but she did it. And now that's all she uses. So even really, really successful people feel that way about tech. So let's see, missing the, oh yeah, missing the eye focus. So this is something I wanted to ask Michelle and Paul, because I struggle with that sometimes too. And someone had mentioned earlier, I noticed in the chat that they're not able to achieve the tack sharp photos and they think it's maybe because they don't have enough light. So I think maybe that's something that we can ask. Let's get Michelle and Paul on here and we can ask them about that. Paul and Michelle. Hopefully hey you can guys. see them now. Hey, Nikki. Thank you Hi, both guys. so much for being here. Like I mentioned, Michelle Celentano is a Canon Explorer of Light and she is actually on our website in the in our video library. And then she also has her own family posing course on the Portrait Masters in the store. So make sure you check that out if you haven't ever seen any of Michelle's videos yet. And Paul Giroux, like I mentioned, is a Sony Alpha, which is very cool. And yeah, I'm excited. I'm so excited to chat with you guys. So, all right, first question. When people don't get tack sharp photos, oh my gosh, how do you combat that? What do you think, Paul? Well, I autofocus has changed the game for me. And uh, I'm sure it's probably that way now with anybody who switched to mirrorless because now you have the ability to just trust it that it's going to nail the eye even at maximum aperture and I've got my uh, Sony A92 and maybe later on I can show you kind of how I configure it so that it goes to the eye so the old way for me was 
back button focus, recompose, and pray that I got it sharp. And that was in DSLR days. And so I would never want to shoot at maximum aperture because I was afraid at like 1.2 that it was not going to be there. So I'd be at 1.6 or 1.8. But now with this, I'm just, I trust it. I know it's going to dial it in and I could never go back to the way I shot before and I would never want to have to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so help me help me understand a little bit more. Is this something that okay. is specific to Sony or is this just... Yeah, well, it's been with Sony since the t 2013 when they came out with the A7 and the A6000. It was autofocus single, which is uh, one shot in Canon speak. They had what they called eye autofocus and I didn't really pay much attention to it. Okay. But then when it started moving into autofocus continuous or AI servo, which is what Canon calls it, yep. and it could track and do an eye autofocus, this was probably around 2015 with the A7R2. It was like, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. And if you want, I can kind of show you. I've got a little setup here demo that I can show you real quick. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So I am switched on. So I've got a photo here, and this is a 50 millimeter lens and see how it finds the eye, even on a photograph. Wow, I'm not doing anything but holding the shutter speed, shutter release halfway down. Yeah, wow. You know, that's the power of eye autofocus, and it's only gotten better yeah. since 2013, 2014, when it first came out for Sony mirrorless. And that's one of the advantages of mirrorless, and I've been preaching it, Sometimes I think to uh, an empty room sometime for the last few years, but now, now it's starting to kind of yeah. hit critical mass. That's awesome. But like, what about for people who, cause you know, can't necessarily jump to the mirrorless yet. Like if you are still like Sue built her business with a, a you know, uh, what was it? A Mark one or something with a kit lens or something. I think it was a 60 D or something. Or yeah. Something yeah. Like yeah. That. I mean, I know there are just a lot of people out there who can't jump to mirrorless right now. So what if obviously if you can like that's amazing and that would be incredible but michelle what if people can't like you know how do you deal with getting not being able to get attack sharp well i think that's a, a big question especially when we photographing multiple people in a frame i always get who do you focus on you know which person yeah. do you focus on and uh i mean part of that solution for me is shooting on a tripod and, you know, when you have your group in a setting, they're not moving, it's, it's not a journalistic type of image, it's a portrait, I can focus on the eye and leave it in manual and just shoot from there on tripod because everybody's staying in the same place. So as awesome as autofocus was, even on DSLRs, sometimes manual focus is just better for me because I have my group set up, I focus on the person I want to, and I leave it there, and I didn't have to worry about it tracking or trying to look for the focus. Yeah. So for me, shooting on a tripod was a huge factor in that, and also for me, making sure all of those faces are on the same focal plane, because people always say, well, one's tack sharp and the other one isn't, and that's just a matter of getting all your faces on the same focal plane when you're photographing more than one person at a time. Right. Yeah, for sure. That's so important. So Okay, so I have a question for both of you. Someone asked, how do you know if it's the technology that's going wrong or if it's something that I'm doing wrong? Like, you know, I, I guess there's certain things that we can look at, like, is your shutter speed too slow? Or, you know, how can you just decide... Like, do I need to get my lens calibrated or is it just me? You know, what do you guys think? I think Michelle kind of nailed it when she's, she said she went to a tripod. And I think that's always kind of like your kind of way to create a baseline. And mm, then you can mm -hmm. figure it out from there. And I was also going to add to what she said about, for me, it's like aperture. I started to shoot larger apertures when I got more confident. Yeah. When I had my technique more down. And it may be just these little micro movements of your hand moving and not stopping when you get recomposed so i mean always maybe start with a deeper aperture than you might like to work with and then get more comfortable more confident just make sure that your shutter speed's high enough so that it's not getting vibration or if it's uh and then you can always lock it down like michelle said with the tripod to then really kind of like reinforce that that way of working yeah i love that idea of of using a tripod for sure what about, so the, the focus recompose seems to be something that people kind of get caught up on. So 
you know, toggling over to the closest eye or however you want to focus. And then the recompose, people get like a little tripped up. So I'm wondering if if what people might be doing is, like you said, the, that like minor movement forward or backward when you're recomposing can really throw it off. Is there any other thing you could suggest for people in terms of the focus recompose? I would say that if you've got the the really good photo uh, sensors, you know, with the phase detect autofocus, uh, like what I'm using now has almost 94% of the entire area that does phase detect autofocus. So I have real confidence in it. But with previous cameras, it may not be that way. So mm. you have to kind of know what are your optimized focus points. And then you want to utilize them as much as possible. I know with the old 5D Mark II, you really only had phase detect autofocus with the center focus points. So that's why I did focus recompose when I was a Canon shooter for all those years. But now that we're into the mirrorless space, and I know Michelle can talk with great uh, detail about her cameras, that game has changed so much. I mean, focus recompose is kind of like 2007 for me. It's just not anything that I I'm so consider. stuck in 2007. <laughs> so 2008. I know, right? Oh, that's so funny. I think the other thing is um, it really depends on what people are shooting with. For example, some cameras have... 16 focal points and mm, some cameras mm -hmm. have 45 and some cameras have 64 points of focus. So it really can come down to which particular camera you're using and you have to work within the space of those focal points when you're in an autofocus mode. If you feel like your focus points aren't enough, then you might be better off just going into manual focus. I mean, it's just a little... It's, I used to say all the time that new cameras have this amazing thing called manual focus where you can <laughs> actually control it and not have to rely on the camera. Like it's just going back to more of an analog physical way of nailing your focus um, without having to rely on the camera zooming all over the place, depending on how many focal points you have in your camera. Some people are shooting rebels, rebels. Older Rebels don't have as many focal points as even the 5D Mark IV did. Right. And now mirrorless, I'm literally corner to corner in my mirrorless camera. I will never have to recompose again. Um, so it, it, it really depends on what you're shooting and how many focal points you have. Yeah. And if this makes people out there feel better about also being stuck in 2007 like me, <laughs> Sue said she just got her mirrorless this week. So oh, yeah. this makes me really, really, really want to upgrade. Hey, Michelle, while I have you um, right now, yeah. someone was asking what f-stop do you typically use for a group of like three to five people? It, it varies depending on where I'm at. If I'm in the studio and I have a plain background, I will make sure that I could be in that five, six, eight. But if I'm outside and I really want to get my dreamy, creamy, beautiful bokeh backgrounds, yeah. I can shoot as low as three, five, four point oh. And it really is just making sure all those noses are on the same focal plane so that everyone is in focus, but I'm still getting that background, a nice shallow depth of field. So it, it depends. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Someone someone made a comment in the chat room. It says, I think the main issue is that most of us are self-taught. So having a course that helps with you don't know what you don't know type situation is so great. And, and it's true. And that's why I love John Gringo's course. He's like such a good teacher. He just right. breaks it down so simply so that you don't have to question or wonder or like break it down. It's not, he just, the way he teaches makes things, makes things so simple. That's why I love his courses so much. Well, and if I can say this too, yeah. is that most people pick up their camera and never actually test it. They yeah. never test their lenses. They never test this aperture, that aperture, what happens. Yeah. Take, you know, take similar items, take 10 cans of iced tea, soda, whatever you drink, line them up on a table in, you know, long formation and on every single lens, shoot it wide open, shoot it at the next aperture, the next aperture, change your focal point, look at every single image, see what your lenses do because different lenses at different apertures are going to look completely different. And until you know what that lens does, you, you might not be nailing the focus because you're not in the sweet spot of that particular lens. Yeah. So you, ha you have to set up scenarios where you're testing every single lens so that you are fully aware and you know what they do at certain focal lengths. 
and apertures. Yeah, I love that. I love that you said that doing a test and and this isn't to make anyone feel badly about ever asking questions like this in our Facebook group, yeah. but sometimes people will say like, okay, I've got this corner or they'll show us a room and they'll say, where should I set up? And it's like, okay, I need you to test it. <laughs> I need you to go right, in each right. corner and, and test it out and see what looks better to you at different times. You know, if you're using window light, look at the, you know, different times of the day, set it up different times of the day and practice. Because unless yep. we're in there testing it with you, it's so hard to, I mean, we can make a best guess, but it's the same, right. I feel like, with testing your technology. Yeah. Just imagine trying to do this with film because that's how uh, I learned. I know. And, you know, you had to, you had to <laughs> make so many mistakes and then remember what those mistakes were. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I mean what we, format camera. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we, if we've been in this business for a while, that's what you started with. But yet also there was some kind of mystery and magic to it. And now there's less of that. But it's still, to me, I would, wouldn't want to go back because what we can do now is yeah. just pretty much anything we see, we can photograph it. And it just is a matter of discipline and practice. And if it does, if I can leave, uh, you know, encourage folks in the, the classes to not just wait to have somebody in front of your camera, just right. take that camera and go out and use it try it see what it works you know what what breaks put so to speak you know breaks yeah. yeah put it put it on program and just see what the meter does zero it out and know how the camera meter tends to default and then you begin to get awareness of your cameras yeah and it just comes with practice and there's there's no real shortcut for that because there is a bit of a time element involved in it Absolutely. If for people who are out there feeling like this is all really overwhelming, there's so much to learn, what would you guys say would be the first things to really hone in on, you know, as far as settings and just like learning certain functions? I'm going to give you a quote that was given to me really early on in my career, which at the time it was said to me, and it was said to me by an elderly man who'd been in the industry for years. And this is probably 30 years ago. And I was young and green and cocky. And he said to me, I think he was like 80 at the time. And he said, the camera needs to become an extension of your hands where you're no longer thinking about any of the buttons or any of the functions that you can just create through the mind and your, your hands move and can change the settings and you can do things without having to overthink it at all. And I was like, extension of my hand, crazy old man. <laughs> I totally get it now because that's what happens. Like your tool needs to become an extension of your hand. You know, carpenters don't think about the tools anymore. They just pick them up and they use them and it's, it's natural to them. Um, so to answer your question, it's learning what different ISOs look like on your camera and learning each lens. And, you know, for some people, they have only one lens and that's even easier for them to learn. Take that 50 or that 85 millimeter and test it out in different situations and see what it gives you. Test it out in natural light, test it out um, on the front eye, on the back eye, focus on different things, see what you like. You just, it's a constant playing and learning. And when you get a new lens, you'll do it all over again. Um, looking at what your shutter speeds do. Um, the first, first time I made my big shutter speed um, oops was on, uh, medium format and I was hand holding 150 millimeter lens on a medium format camera oh boy handheld in not such great outdoor light um, shooting bridal portraits for another studio and I didn't realize <laughs> that at the time that I needed to match my shutter speed to at least the length of my lens and it's even more critical on a medium format camera and there was just camera shake everywhere yep, yep. and I had no idea. And I learned that lesson the hard way. So learning that. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've learned definite lessons the hard way for sure. I remember being at a wedding and this is related to off camera flash, which I still it's like thinking about it still makes me like sweat and like shake. And I remember being on a dance floor and I could not get my light set like I could not get it looking the way that I wanted to. And I was flipping out pretending like everything was great. And I'm not like sweating. Yeah. You know, it was just it was horrible. And and what I did, I remember it was right around Fourth of July because we had sparklers, and I had Dan stand outside with sparklers, and I was like preparing, and and I just practice, practice, practice until I I wasn't ever going to be in that situation again because that situation right. sucks to be in. Ugh, it's the worst. Yep. You sure learn more from the mistakes sometimes than the successes, and I mean, 
we've all, I think we've all gone through those things too. Oh yeah, uh, for sure. To kind of like go piggyback on what Michelle said about the cameras is I recommend folks do one camera, one lens, and then just work it until they know that focal length inside and out. And I pick a 50 millimeter lens because it's the lens that they used to sell with cameras in the stores back before 24 to 105s or whatever became kind of ubiquitous for like a kit lens. And I think it really helps kind of refine your skills and your visions. And it's no surprise that Sue loves and uses the 50 because it's a beautiful lens if it's used well. And that comes down to like selecting your aperture and where you stand in relationship to your subject and where they are in relationship to their background. So all of these things, you gain kind of an understanding and a real awareness of what one focal length can do. And then you can just go wider and can go tighter. And I just say, start small, build up, but get comfortable with all the technical stuff. And like from a technical standpoint, if you're really still learning and you're not fully sure you want to go all manual in terms of shutter aperture iso maybe pick your shutter and your working aperture and then go auto iso okay and yeah. just that way you know what your shutter's set at whether it's a 125th or a 250th or more and if you're at 2.8 or f2 then you know what you're kind of dealing with in terms of depth of field and then your iso just kind of works its way up or down to get to those two variables okay Okay, so how important do you guys think it is to calibrate your lenses? I've actually never done this, but I'm curious if you guys have ever done it. I've not done it on my own. Um, I've sent them in to be calibrated, and I would only do it if you feel like, like if you put a newspaper up on the wall and you photograph the type and in your it looks in focus to you and it's completely out, then there's something wrong. Okay. Um, so putting something very flat and something that should absolutely be sharp um, and do it in manual focus where you're looking at it yourself and then do it in autofocus and, you know, look at big letters and small letters. And if you, if it's soft anywhere and you know that it was sharp and your camera went beep beep and it said, yep, you're sharp. Yeah. Then you might need to send it in. So, it, you know, uh, but otherwise I've, I've only sent my lenses in once and it was because I was having trouble getting them sharp. Yeah. And I think it was only two lenses and they did need to be calibrated, but that's very rare, I think. Right. Right. Especially now with mirrorless, you just yeah. don't really need to do it. It's more of a kind of a thing that you need to do with DSLR lenses. Okay. Someone mentioned just in the chat saying that they're able to get tack sharp photos using strobes, but not quite as much with natural light. I'm curious what you guys think, but I'm wondering if, because with natural light, typically you might have to have a slower shutter speed because that if you've got like strobes, I mean, yeah. And so I'm wondering if that might be the issue. Is there anything else you can think of as to why in strobe light it would be different? Well, so let's call that like what it's actually called. That would be camera shake, not out of focus. Mm. So you may be getting camera shake, but there probably is a little teeny piece of that image that is sharp, but then you have that little bit of camera shake. So making sure your uh, shutter speed is at least what your lens is, probably a little bit higher, and then that will help negate that. Um, but also, again, I mean, Paul's talking about mirrorless, um, the new mirrorless camera with in-camera image stabilization, as well as in-lens stabilization. Um, I shot the new 85 2.0 macro lens handheld at a 20th of a second, and it is insanely tack sharp. And never in my life before mirrorless could I hold an 85 millimeter below 85 millimeter. Right, me uh, either. Below, yeah. So b below that shutter speed, and it, it's in it's incredible. It's yeah so incredible. So really, look if you're still you know if you're on DSLR, look at that shutter speed. Make sure if if you're still feeling like there's camera shake, then go a little bit higher on the shutter speed. Bump you know bump your ISO up a little bit more so that you have a better shutter speed to avoid camera shake. Right, and if you have a shutter speed that is as fast as it needs to be. And someone said they were using a tripod and it still wasn't tack sharp. I would, wouldn't you think that would be when it be time to maybe send it in and see if there's something going yeah. on? Yeah. I mean, if you're trying yeah, all sure. of these things, but still, but still, but still not getting a tack sharp, yeah. then maybe just have it serviced and just see, I would right. think. 
and send the camera and the lens in because you know they work yeah. together so you know and every body and every lens is mm, so micro because they're just machines right so you know you may have you may put one lens on uh, one body and it's totally sharp you may put on another body and it's slightly out and that's just you know the system working together so if you're having a problem send everything at one time together yeah okay uh, this is a question about sony paul so this would be for you i can't sure. figure out how to make my a7 iii am i saying that right i'm so bad uh, a73 yeah <laughs> a73 gotcha um i can't get the uh See me in technology. Sorry. The ASAP. I don't even like. Sometimes I don't even pay attention to all the new stuff coming out because I just. I don't know. I need to start. anyway. Yeah. Um. Anyway, they're saying, how do I get it to focus easy easily or to follow my subjects? I must be doing something wrong. So they can't figure out how to get the eye focus to focus easily. Does that make well, sense, Paul? Uh, I don't have an A seven three, so I I'm just trying to kind of going off memory, but. What you want to do is use a mode. It, look at the mode that you're using. Find out what focus mode you're using. I tend to use a mode called, let me see if I can put it on there for you. It's kind of cool to see a, a, a different screen. I'm so used to seeing screen. Canon. Well, I, I shot Nikon yeah. for a while, yeah. and then I switched over to Canon. And now it's, it's, it's kind of neat to see the back of a Sony. And if you're listening out there, if you watch the live, you'll see this. Oh, okay. On Paul's screen. This is, this is where it takes a little bit when you're coming from, like for me, when I came over from Canon to Sony, it took a while to kind of understand what these settings meant mm -hmm. because they were very different than anything I'd had. So wide area is, is, it just finds the most contrast over the entire area of the screen, almost like 96%. Zones parses it into about 12 spots. Center is what it says. This is flexible spot and you can adjust the size from medium to small to large. But then these are these kind of areas down here that are like where I think the magic of Sony kind of comes in to play. Now, there's something in Sony that's called real-time tracking, which means that you can lock it on a face and it will basically stick to that one person. So you have to check your camera because I, I'm trying to remember exactly what is different with the a7 III versus the a9 II, which this camera is. But this is the mode that I use almost 99.9% .9 of the time. And what it does is it, it's called tracking expand flexible spot. And I put the, I move the, the dot and it's a very smart dot and, it's, and it sees a face and then it sees an eye. And I'm literally just turning the yeah, camera that's and it's so cool. sticking. And if I wanna move it to this little one, then I move it there and then it does do the same thing. Now that's kind of like real time tracking when you see that bigger square. Yeah, very and it cool. Couldn't really find it. Yeah. So I would just say try different focal area, uh, focusing uh, mechanisms and see what works better for you because they're going to work. Some are going to work better than others, but I have found that this is gold for me. In, 99.9% .9 of the circumstances. Awesome. And Very it's cool. one of the reasons why I recommend folks try to stay as current as possible with their cameras because Sony's changing so fast, as you can imagine. And the more current cameras have the most recent tech. Not to say the old cameras are not great because they are, but they've just advanced them in the newer models. Yeah. yeah awesome. Exponentially for sure. Michelle, what do you, yeah. what are your go-to lenses, both for in-studio and out, out, you know, outside? Uh, for me, the 70 to 200 is a go-to family portrait lens. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of my 85 prime. I love a good prime. Uh, so if I can use a prime, I will. But when I'm working very quickly with families and I want to be able to just zoom in and zoom out, uh, my 70 to 200 is awesome. The other reason why I like my 70 to 200 is because it has a collar on it. And so when I attach it to the tripod, I can easily rotate from vertical to horizontal um, which it can be a little bit more cumbersome uh, with a prime lens that doesn't have a collar. So that makes sense. Um, but that is huge for me. Uh, I love, love that lens. But again, I love my 85 millimeter prime as well. Yeah. I just went back to my 70 to 200. I stopped using it for yeah. a while after I got so burned out with weddings from using it a lot because it was hurting my back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Tripod. Yeah. Well, yeah, that too. <laughs> 
Oh my yeah. gosh. But I just got it and I started using it again. I just did a couple senior shoots with it and I love it. I use the Sigma yeah. at 70 to 200. Yeah. I bought it years and years ago and I'm due for an upgrade on all of my equipment. But man, it's just it, what a great lens. I love the yep. compression of the 200 millimeter. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Another 2.8. It's amazing. I mean, even a lot of times I, I can shoot at 2.8 again if everyone is on that same focal plane. Um, so don't be afraid to go there. Just make sure your subjects, I mean, it's easy to shoot wide open with one subject, easy yeah. peasy, yeah. but people get very like anxious about that when there's more than one person in the portrait. And that that's my tip on that. Make sure I, I literally will say to clients, like there's a piece of glass in front of you. I want all your noses touching that same piece of glass. And when I'm shooting, you'll see me like say, bring your nose closer to me, bring your nose closer to me, bring your nose closer. Yeah. Cause I'm yeah. trying to get them all in the same focal plane. Right, right. Someone asked me how the switch was from Nikon to Canon and if it took a long time to get used to the system. And, you know, honestly, it really didn't take that long. And and truly, I loved Nikon. It was it was great. I married into Nikon. My husband had a D80. I built my business with a Nikon D80 with a Sigma 50 millimeter. It was a macro lens. And that's how I built my business. And then I just kept because I had Nikon already. I kept with it. But once I started working with Sue, it was just way easier for me to switch to be Canon so that we could switch in and out. And I knew how to use her camera. She handed it to me. And it really didn't take very long, one or two shoots. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's really not that big of a deal. But I mean, whether you're Sony, Nikon or Canon, they are all amazing machines. I mean, they each one has different strengths. And, you know, it it doesn't matter. Just choose one that you love and go with it. I mean, it's, you know, obviously Sue's a Canon Explorer of Light, so she is Canon. And Michelle, you're Canon. Paul, you're Sony. Sorry, we didn't have a Nikon person today, but that doesn't mean we don't love Nikon. It just worked out that yeah, way. So, for sure. you know, all of these machines are just truly incredible. And we're so fortunate to live in an age, like you said, Paul, we don't have to deal with film anymore. If we want to, we can. But wow, what a difference, you know, going from, from film to digital. And if I can just speak to the Canon side of this for Mm -hmm. a quick second, for people who feel like I don't want to go mirrorless because I have to switch every piece of equipment. uh, Canon did an amazing thing when they went mirrorless. They made an adapter that will fit your EF lenses onto the new R bodies. So if you really want to jump in, you can get a mirrorless body. The R6 is about 2300 and it's amazing. Um, I've played with both the R5 and the 6. I think for me, I'm going to end up going with the six because the R5 is overkill for what I do. It's 8K video. It's uh, 45 megapixel. It's a $3,900 body where the R5 is 4K video, which isn't a big deal to me either way. I don't shoot video. And it's a 20 megapixel camera, which is very close to what my Mark IV was. But you can pick up a mirrorless body and use your current EF lenses with it. And there's no difference in your lens. um, And it's just an adapter. And so if you want to jump into mirrorless, this is a fairly inexpensive way to do it. And then you can start to, you know, build up your lens bag as you go one at a time. But you don't have to make a full switch immediately, which I think was really smart. Yeah, yeah. Someone asked... As far as photographing families outside, when you don't mm-hmm. just have them standing in a line, maybe when, the, you know, you're getting more of those candid sure. action sort of photos, especially at weddings when you're just constantly, you know, or little kids running around. Do you have either of you, do you, Paul or Michelle, do you have a go to setting that you just start with and just go from there? If they're moving, I got to at minimum get a 500th of a second. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I spent 20 years in newspapers and shooting sports. You had to get for night sports one 500th at 2.8, no matter what the ISO was. And 2.8 was your maximum aperture on a 70 to 200 or 180 or whatever. So, you know, like your maximum aperture is going to be 2.8 and then whatever it takes ISO wise to get to that one 1,000th, one 500th of a second. So I kind of come at it from the the back way it's like well what shutter and what app iso do i need or i'm sorry what shutter do i need and then what what's my maximum aperture and then what's the iso to bring me there and then just build it from that okay gotcha is that same for and you I Michelle? Do think, well um yeah it's it's hard to say what is my go-to because and this is part i think of knowing our equipment and knowing your situation i don't ever think there is a go-to for example, 
you're at a wedding, you have a bridal party of 20, you can't get them all on the same focal plane. So yeah, I'm going to stop down to F8, F11, because in this case, all the faces being sharp are far more important than having more of an artsy, shallow depth of field. If I'm shooting journalistically and more of a lifestyle, then yeah, I definitely need a, a faster shutter speed and a higher ISO. But if I'm in a controlled environment in the studio where I'm shooting strobe, I can be wide open, I can be shut down. It's, it, it really, it, there's no go-to. It really is knowing your equipment, knowing the situation you're in, knowing what you have to capture, what's most important. Is the faces being sharp most important? Is an artistic feel more important? Is an out-of-focus background? Say you're in a really like horrible looking area. I mean, I've shot weddings in horrible venues early in my day where you might want to throw that whole background out of focus and you need to know how to do that as well in that situation. Mm -hmm. So it, it really is problem solving and thinking ahead. And what is the situation? What is the situation going to call for? How many subjects do I have? What is my camera capable of? Which lens do I have on my camera? So I, I never really want people to feel like I need a formula there's no formula. Mm-hmm. It's problem solving, knowing your equipment and knowing what the end result of your image is going to be. Yeah, I love that. And that goes back to that practicing over and yeah. over and over until it becomes an extension of your hands. Exactly what that guy told you, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. So someone someone commented that they have an 85 and then a 27 to 70. 24, 70? Yeah, I've never heard of a 27 yeah, to 70. 70. Yeah, unless again, I'm just out of touch. Okay. So anyway, um, they were saying that the 85 always seems more flattering and sharper, but I'm wondering if you are shooting someone at a 24, you might be distorting them or... Absolutely. You know, so, and, and they're con- they're saying they're considering going to a 50 millimeter in studio. I use my 50 in studio most of the time because I've got a smaller shooting space. When I had a larger studio space, sometimes I would use the 85. But if this is something that you're wondering about, about which focal length to use for each thing. Sue has a really, really great video on this, and she shows the difference between shooting with a 35 with curves that can make it a little bit more flattering for someone with versus a 50 versus an 85. It's all about those camera angles. So make sure to, it's, it's, oh, I'm drawing a blanket what it's called. It's called um, angles, I think. Shooting with, shooting with angles. I'll have to look that up, but yeah, shooting with angles. So make sure you watch that one if you're questioning which focal lengths do I use for each situation because you know and and if you've got a smaller studio space and you can only use a 35 it's going to be really important for you to know how to use that 35 so that you don't distort someone and give them like a lollipop head yeah people ask me that a lot about uh, family groups like you know how wide of a lens do you use and i will always choose to use a longer focal length Mm. whenever possible Mm -hmm. if i can back up and shoot a group at 100 millimeter I would rather do that because you're going to get so much less distortion on the edge of your images and keeping in mind that when you use a wide angle lens for a group, those people on the edges tend to get wide very quickly if you're not centering them up correctly and your camera is not exactly level. Um, So for me, longer focal lengths are ideal, especially for the compression and for groups and for flattering faces. And to the question of the, you know, uh, zoom, especially in the EF lenses or, uh, you know, your uh, DSLR lenses, primes are always going to be sharper Mm -hmm. because they're prime. They're sharp at that 85, that 100. Um, So if you're feeling like the 85 is sharper than, you know, 2470, a prime is always going to be sharper. If I could add to, I think it's really easy to you know, to get a little bit lazy with zoom lenses, especially in the 16 to 35 range. Yep. And one, one thing you can do is just kind of have a muscle memory to move it to 35 or 70 if it's, if it's a 24 to 70 and then move your body back before zooming if you can help it, if you want to kind of discipline yourself to keep a longer focal length or just be really aware of where you set it. And don't just kind of like lazily kind of zoom it around because it's it's really easy to get distorted real fast. Right, right. Very good point. And and I do when I put that seventy to two hundred on, I notice myself not moving as much. And I was like, wait, nope, gotta move back. Like I can't keep. Yep, get lazy on it. So it's funny you said that. Yeah. So uh, I have a question on. Let's see. 
On mirrorless, how does the EVF work when using strobe and flash? And isn't the image through the electronic viewfinder very dark? Mm, that is one of the things that was one of the biggest mistakes I made when I first switched to mirrorless. I didn't realize that there was something called, uh, it's called setting effects, and it makes a huge difference. Let me see if I can find it. If you um, live view display, and if you have it setting effects on, it works great with available light and continuous light. But when you use strobe, you want to turn the setting effects off. So what it does is it kind of creates this like electronic version, if you will, of a, of a viewfinder, an optical viewfinder, so that it pushes out a continuous amount of light. So that avoids that dark situation in a, like say a reception or in a low light room. Now, when you use something that's got a, like a dedicated hot shoe for the Sony, and I suspect it's probably this way for, for Canon, Michelle, Mm -hmm. But it, it automatically kind of defeats the setting effects and goes into, uh, turns a live view off so that it kind of gives a optical sense of being like a consistent, even exposure, a little brighter, making it easier to focus. But the first time I learned it was a hard, hard lesson because it was so dark. I had to kind of shoot and hope that depth of field carried me and then check the back of the camera. But I was having, you know, because I was kind of flying blind there. But that is really the difference between EVF than optical viewfinders. But once you start using it, it's tough to go back to anything optical because often, at least the Sony's, the, the EVF is so bright in dark rooms that it, it actually allows you to see sometimes better than you could yeah. see with the naked eye. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. This is really inspiring me to have my next big purchase be a mirrorless. And someone actually asked if, if I had some money to spend on gear is that what you guys would recommend is to upgrade to a mirrorless? Without a doubt. And someone asked yeah. you, with, with the uh, the adapter that works, you know, so that you can continue to use those same lenses, at least on Canon, I don't mm -hmm. know if it is on Sony and Nikon or how that works, but does is it any sort of quality issue with photos? Does it affect the quality when you're using that sort of adapter? No, not at all. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And so... And this is how it was explained to me. And I think this is a great explanation. So with your DSLRs, you have that mirror box inside the camera. Mm -hmm. And with mirrorless, you no longer have that mirror box. And so the adapter actually takes up just about that same amount of space. And so when you put that uh, lens on the adapter, it acts exactly the same as it did on my DSLR. There's no quality loss. There is no conversion. It doesn't turn into like a 1.6 or a 1.3. The lens is exactly as it is, which is which is what I think was really one of the brilliant things that Canon did with this so that you can move into the mirrorless without feeling like you have to buy everything. Um, and there's a couple of different adapters. I think there's actually three. Um, one of them is just a straight adapter. And then one of them actually has the new control ring on it. And it's a little ring on the on the, uh, the adapter that will allow you to use it as an aperture ring or a shutter speed ring or an ISO ring. You can set that ring to do whatever you want. They also have an ND filter adapter, which is awesome because if you wanna shoot with uh, neutral density filters, it's built right into the adapter, which is connected to the camera in front, uh, behind the lens, in front of the camera behind the lens. So you can swap out neutral density filters if you're gonna be using strobe outside or you just want neutral density. And then there's one that's just a plain adapter. So I think they range from like 100 to $200, which is really reasonable. Yeah, for sure. For, for, for Sony, Nikki, uh, they just came out with an adapter last week called the LAEA5, oh, which allows you to put certain uh, old A-mount lenses. So Sony bought the assets of Konica Minolta in like 2006, and with it came the A-mount which was in the earlier cameras before the E-mount cameras, which is what we have now since 2013. Or actually, uh, the NEX system started the E-mount system. So it was a kind of a switch over from the old DSLR-style lenses to the more mirrorless-style style lenses. And one of the neat things about mirrorless cameras is that you can adapt them for pretty much any lens. So like you could put a Leica lens on a Sony mirrorless, and it would do a great job. You can also put EF lenses, you know, the Canon lenses on there. I don't think there's a mount yet for our lenses, but if you had uh, EF lenses and use something like a Metabones adapter or a Sigma MC11, 
you could put Canon lenses on there. And because they have an all-electronic mount, when they went to EOS back in 87, it was the first camera system that was really all-electronic. And it helps now because it actually still works on Canon. Uh, Nikon's a little trickier to modify for, uh, for Sony because of some older tech that they carried over that kind of impedes it a little bit. But right. uh, Canon works pretty well. But there's, there is some differences in terms of like some of the features that you get. Like you may not get 20 frames a second with the A9 II. You may only get 10. And the color is a little bit different because Canon's optimized for their sensors like Nikon's optimized for their sensors and Sony is optimized for their sensors too. So you might see some slight differences in color. Yeah. At least that's what I found. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Very cool. Well, that I think will make people feel better about, you know, switching yeah. over to mirrorless so they don't have to buy all new lenses. So one of the things yeah. people ask a lot about, especially in our, our Subrice Facebook group, the members only Facebook group, is about low lighting, especially on this side of the world. I know we have a lot of um, people from all over the world, but on this side of the world, we're about to head into fall and winter where things start to get darker again, at least on my side of the country and Paul's side of the country. <laughs> um, <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> you know, one thing I really want to recommend, because someone asked about shooting in low light specifically for dance type photos where probably you can't use any sort of strobe or flash, but I just wanted to ask for an overall just question about low light. And I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, Michelle, but for people who maybe don't want to delve into strobes yet or constant lights yet or anything, they still want to use that natural light. How can you kind of ensure a more sharper image? And and also before you answer that, week five is lighting. So we're going to cover a lot, all of this like low light stuff. We're going to cover yeah. so much with lighting, but I'm curious what you guys have to say now just about keeping those images sharp in low light. I actually think you can push your ISO mm -hmm. on these newer cameras to crazy numbers and still get incredible images. Yes. Um, I'm actually a fan of using high ISOs because in all honesty, digital is so sharp and 45 megapixels. I'm a portrait photographer. I'm working with moms in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. And we don't want to be that sharp. So <laughs> yeah, I actually totally. like shooting higher <laughs> ISOs. Because it gives you more of a film look and film was so forgiving to the skin. Digital is not forgiving to your skin, but film was. Mm -hmm. And I would shoot 400, 800 ISO films. And it, it, was, it, it was like pre-retouching using a higher ISO. So you can still do that. Shoot a higher ISO. Um, unless you're making billboards for your community, you're going to get away with really great prints. So don't be afraid to push that. Right. Yeah. You know, actually, when Sue and I were prepping for this week, we always talk on Mondays and prep for the week. And and one of the things she said is make sure you tell people, push your ISO. See how far you can yeah. take it. A little grain is okay. And there are also it programs like in Lightroom, you can just slide. There's a little slider that you can take the noise down just a little bit and it removes a ton of that grain. So, yeah. and, and it's another thing, practice, practice. See how far you can push that ISO with whatever camera body you have. It's really, it's not as scary as people think to bump up that ISO. It's really not. Right. I think 12,800 is the new 1600, especially <laughs> with the Sonys. And it's, you know, uh, I'm not afraid to go as high as I need to go. And the new camera that they've got coming out later this month, the A7S III, pushes the envelope even higher. So 28,000 or, or 25,000 would probably be pretty usable in that range. And it actually might be pretty dramatic and pretty cool, especially if you convert to black and white and yeah, love that absolutely. grain effect. I mean, the old TMZ 3200 had a look that was really distinctive. And uh, <laughs> I, I always, I, I use film as, a, as my kind of my guide anyway, because I've always had that aesthetic for Triax or NPH. And if I can get close to those looks, then I'm happy. And even if it has a little bit more grain, I don't mind. Yeah, I totally yeah, agree. For sure. God, T-Max 3200. Oh. On Alien Skin, there's one of those um, filters. It sure is. Yeah, yeah. I use it sometimes. Okay, so I know this yeah. is camera basics and everything, but something that we often talk about in you know the Facebook group and everything is about people moving from state to state. I know I made the move from Seattle to Michigan, and I've got studios in both places. And I'm curious, I know, Michelle, you recently moved from New York to Arizona and Paul from California yeah. back to Minnesota. Did I get both of those things Wisconsin. right? Wisconsin. I'm in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Now. Why did I say Minnesota? I always, the owner of White House okay. Custom Color lives in Minnesota and you're in Wisconsin yeah. or yeah. vice versa. Oh. Right. Anyway, somewhere yeah. in the Midwest. Yeah. 
So I'm curious. It was actually 18 years ago, but still I was in the middle of, uh, I was full hundred percent weddings when I moved from New York to Arizona Okay. and my daughter had been born and she was nine months old and nine 11 happened and a whole, a whole bucket of things happened, which, you know, really helped encourage me to move to Arizona, but I did have to start all over. Yeah. Um, and in a new, in a whole new way, I moved to a family plan community and there weren't a lot of weddings happening where I was. And so I had to completely reinvent myself from a hundred percent wedding photographer to now photographing children, newborns, families. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a, it, it's a whole new world when you, when you move and you pick up and, um, you know, to your question, how do you get started again? And you're queen of this, get out and network. It's hard right now because, you know, we're a little, you know, stuck in our space, but I'm just getting out, meeting people, getting involved with mom groups, getting involved with, uh, women's groups, getting involved with your church, get just getting involved with where there are people are that you can talk about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's one thing I've said multiple times is that you just have to do the same thing that you did before and do it again. And yes, it's a little right. irritating because I'm like, I've done this. Like, I don't want to do it again. Yeah. But you kind of have to, you know, it's not like, but the the great thing is, though, is you you know what to do. You've got your portfolio yeah. built. You've got your pricing set. If you've built a business somewhere else, all of that is done. Now it's just getting your right. name out there. So, I mean, you really have most of it done. But, Paul, I'm curious how it's been for you yeah. moving, you know, it, from California back to Wisconsin. It's it's something I never expected to do. I mean, two years ago, we came out here on vacation with not even any thought of coming back to the Midwest. I mean, we had a home there. I mean, people see it on the tour in this Sue Bryce tour from a few years ago. And it got to the point for us where my kids said they wanted to, those two little girls that you saw on that test when I was, those are my grandnieces. So my sister's grandkids and my daughter, who's young, she was 12 at the time said, I want to watch those two girls grow up. And when I heard that, I was like, well, what the hell are we doing in California? Cause we were like, you know, it was, it was okay, but it wasn't like, I never felt like really at home there. And so, um, we just wanted to get back closer to family. My mom was still alive. She passed away last fall and we got 10 months with her. So we had the, it's been the best thing we've ever done. And then when you, it's just like, I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change my California years for the world or my 12 years in Phoenix. I worked at the Republic for 12 years, the newspaper there. And every step along the way was really important to get me to where I am now. And we came back here and we basically had to reinvent because we're in a town of 6,000 as opposed to a suburb of uh, L.A. and Orange County. Right. And, you know, it's but that's okay because I was ready for the change anyway. And it's been great. You know, I'm similar in that where I went from Seattle to a town of 3,300 people. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. all right, we've only got a couple minutes left, and I really want to bring it back to the basics, basics. So if, if we're talking shutter speed, ISO, and f-stop, the three things that you have to know how to work together as you are creating photographs, what advice do you have for people as far as learning those three things? I would say run your camera through shutter speeds. And, you know, when people come at you and when people go side by side, they – require different shutter speeds to stop the action or create blur. So you just have to begin to know what does a 60th of a second do? What does a 30th of a second do to this situation if they're moving fast? Like Michelle said earlier, there's no one size fits all shutter aperture ISO. But if you have to create a go-to that will work in most situations in the studio, then maybe a 200th of a second at f2.8 at whatever ISO gives you those uh, that exposure might be a good place to start and then play with it from there get comfortable go to a larger aperture go to a deeper aperture try different lenses see what works like a 2.8 will look different when it's on a 24 millimeter i mean it's the same amount of depth of field but it's going to give you a different look than it would be on say like a 135 so you got to try it yeah what about you michelle what would you tell people i i absolutely think you know, grab a bunch of knickknacks from your house and line them up and just spend time getting the first one in focus, then the second one. And then 
shooting it at f22 at f11 at f8 at f56 and and focus differently on each of those apertures so that you know what they do then change your aperture and see how that affects your iso or change your iso and see how that affects your aperture um you, you have to see how each of those three things play together in order to understand how you can say change a third of a stop on your on your aperture but you need maybe a little bit more iso and so again it really isn't a formula it is kind of mathematical equations going off in your brain for the situation you're in right. you know you're at your kid's soccer game it's going to be completely different than you're in the studio um you may do a wedding shot where you want mom and dad out of focus in the background looking at their daughter who has her bouquet i mean that's like a 1970s picture paul i know you know that image i'm talking about but um so being able to know that and don't practice on your clients <laughs> do right. not practice learning your camera on your clients get a bunch of inanimate objects mm -hmm. and start photographing them um, I've just started to really dive into strobes in the past three years. I bought wig heads to practice on because, you know, I want to see what butterfly lighting does. I want to see what Rembrandt lighting does. I want to see what this lighting does. I don't want to have to have a live person sitting there all the time. So I bought two wig heads and one of them is a long wig head. So there's a really ridiculous extended neck on it which works perfectly to get heads together, like it would pose them two people together. So what does the light do when I have two subjects? What does the light do when I have one subject? Like, don't practice on clients, practice on your kitchen table. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yep, absolutely. I practice on my dog and a doll. Yeah. Like I had some super old doll. This is before I had kids, so it's kind of creepy that I had a doll, but some like <laughs> random old doll that I had. I don't even know why. And that's what I practice on. And, it, and like I said, my husband holding sparklers, I mean, Anything you can do to create the situation in which you might be shooting is so important to practice with. So, well, thank can you, I thank you, thank you. one thing, Nikki? Oh, go ahead, Paul. Can, I just want to add one thing to what Michelle said, too, about that mathematical part of aperture and shutter and things like that. And I always think of three clicks as a stop. So if you can begin to adjust your shutter or your aperture by thinking about the number of clicks, like if you're moving from inside to outside or something like that, you know, like if it's outside, it's probably going to be about three stops brighter. So you right. may have to reduce your shutter speed nine clicks or three times three. So if you can begin to do those kind of things as you're moving, like if you're doing weddings or any kind of event stuff, it might be helpful. But even if you're just kind of tweaking things a little, little bit left and right. So in the studio, it, it's one easy way to kind of kind of have a tactile tactile experience of, of making those adjustments. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we are out of time, but Paul Giroux and Michelle Salentano, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on here with us on week three of the 12 week startup. Next week, you guys is sales. So that's going to be a really fun one. But as far as week three goes, ask any of the questions that you have in the Sue Bryce Education members only Facebook group. We're there to help you. People jump in all the time to answer questions. If you've got really specific questions, I'm going to throw this out there if it's okay, hopefully, to tag Paul for Sony, Michelle for Canon. And, yeah. and you know, let's just let's work through these problems together. If you're just, like, totally troubleshooting and you can't figure something out, we don't want you to feel like you're alone out there. So put the questions in the Facebook group. Don't be afraid to ask questions. There's no stupid question whatsoever. We're here, your tribe, your team to help you. Just make sure, like Michelle said, you're not practicing on your clients. Make sure you know how to shoot in manual. You are a professional photographer with a business to run, so you have to know how to use your equipment. So, okay. And here's the thing, too, I think, Nikki. Um, if the mistake has been made, we've all made it. Like, oh, totally. I mean, <laughs> so I'm sure Paul can say the same thing. Um, we've already made the mistake. Yeah. And so there is no dumb question. And it, the experience and the knowledge comes from the fact that we've already made the dumb mistake that you feel like you're making. So we can just tell you how not to do it. Not because we're, we were born with the knowledge, but just because we already made that mistake. Yep. Yep. Isn't that the truth? I think we've all done yeah. something where we look back and shake our heads like, oh my gosh. So anyway, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. If thank people want to find you online, where you're can welcome. they look? 
It's easy. Michelle Solentano on Instagram, Michelle Solentano on Facebook. It's not hard to find my name um, in social media at all. Perfect. And what about you, Paul? I'm at Paul Giro, P-A-U-L-G-E-R-O on Instagram and Paul F as in Frank Giro.com. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And thank you to our members for being here live with us on Sue Bryce Education slash live. And also for all of those listening through the Portrait System podcast, we thank you for that as well. So we will chat next week. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening today to the Portrait System Podcast. If you like what you heard, we would really love for you to leave us a five-star review either on iTunes or wherever you're listening. And I really, really want to encourage you to head over to SueBriceEducation.com. Over there, you can find all of the education you need to become a successful photographer. It's only $35, and there are over 1,000 on-demand educational videos on things like posing, lighting, styling, retouching, shooting, marketing, sales, business, and self-value. There's also the 12-week startup program that I love. And there are posing downloads, lighting downloads. I mean, truly everything to help make you not only a better photographer, but to make you more money. Once again, that's SueBriceEducation.com.